Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to New Books in Law, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jay Richards and today I have the great pleasure of introducing to you Dr. Kay Wilson. We're going to be talking about her book, Mental Health Law, Abolish or Reform, and it was published by Oxford University Press in 2021. Now, just to introduce Dr. Wilson, she's a postdoctoral research fellow and the co-convener for Disability Law Network at the University of Melbourne, the Melbourne Law School. Kay, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, uh, Jane. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, it's my pleasure. To be honest, when I saw your book published, I'd been wanting to read it for ages. So I've been really looking forward to this interview. It's great to have you here. Oh, thank you so much. Well, it's great to be here. (laughs) Now, just to get us started, I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about yourself and how you came to write Mental Health Law, Abolish or Reform. Sure. Um, Look, my interest in the area is really both professional and personal, like a lot of people who um, work in the field. Um, So I guess professionally, um, mental health, human rights, disability um, and disability law combines my interests in both law and psychology and probably more particularly disorders of the mind and brain. Um, But personally, um, my father's a Vietnam War veteran and he has a lot of the psychiatric issues that war veterans have. And I think he was probably quite failed by the system. So, you know, despite suffering and trying to seek help for his psychiatric problems since he was medevaced back to Australia in 1966, he really wasn't able to get much help until around the 2000s when he deteriorated so badly, was feeling suicidal, um, and then ultimately went through a pretty horrible process to become accepted as um, totally and permanently incapacitated like his father had been. So I guess I'm very aware of the other side of the coin, which is the inability of people who are suffering um, to get much-needed health health and medical care and social support, um, which in some ways is an issue that is probably affects uh, far more people than compulsory treatment does, uh, not to say that compulsory treatment is an important issue. Um, and I'm also aware of what that means for family and friends. But it's more complicated than that, in that I am also aware that fear of um, compulsory treatment can also prevent people from getting the care that they need. So... Uh, going back a few steps, my grandfather also had a lot of psychiatric issues after World War II, um, and he was admitted to a psychiatric hospital, and he had ECT and things like that in the bad old days. Um, so, you know, when my father got back from Vietnam, he told him, whatever you do, don't get admitted. Um, but then that meant they didn't get any help. Um, and, he, you know, started going to the GP, um, and we uh, put him on some fairly dodgy LSD-type um, medication at one point called Mandrax um, that, you know, caused him to behave very erratically. Um, and, you know, my mum got home from work and the whole house was a mess and um, crashed, nearly crashed the car and did all sorts of things. And she just said, look, I don't know how you're going to deal with this, but we're not, we're going to put these in the toilet um, because it's not going to happen with this. Um, so, um, and he had lots of, uh, you know, for a long time, severe anxiety was stopping him sleeping and making him quite irritable. Um, so what I realise is there's no easy answers here. 
compulsory treatment is bad, but, you know, untreated mental conditions and not getting the help you need when you need it is really bad too. Um, and look, I guess I also know some people who have attempted suicide and, and were refusing treatment, but are probably only still alive today because they were actually forced to have involuntary treatment. Yeah, that's a really, thank you so much for sharing that really personal story. And it is quite an inspiration for, for your work. Um, you know, I, and I do think that comes through, as you said, there really are no easy answers in this space on the one hand compulsory treatment is bad, but on the other hand, not getting treatment is also really bad. So thank you for sharing that. Um, and then sort of just to contextualize this in, in your book, can you tell me more about where mental, what mental health flaw is and where do these calls then for abolition come from? Uh, yeah, sure. So, um, mental health broadly defined probably means all laws to do with mental health. But what I'm really talking about in my book are the various mental health acts, which are in Australia, the UK, Ireland, and most other countries. Um, and what these acts do primarily is that they allow the state, um, through psychiatrists, to involuntarily detain in hospital and treat people with very serious mental health conditions without their consent. Um, and most of the rest of the provisions in those mental health acts are really about putting some scaffolding and guardrails around that big power of coercion that they have. So um, what mental health acts do is they allow psychiatrists to take people without their consent, which would otherwise be illegal. So ordinarily, if you've got a physical health problem and you have a mental uh, and you have mental decision-making capacity, you can just decide that you don't want a particular medical treatment or any treatment at all. And the law recognises that you're in charge of your body. And although it assumes that in most cases, um, although it assumes that in most cases you will act rationally and do what's in your medical medical best interest, um, so that most people will probably follow what their doctor tells them. Obviously, permitting involuntary detention and psychiatric treatment is a big departure from the norm and involves overriding people's ordinary civil rights. So it's always been controversial to some extent, especially among ex-patients who feel violated at that coercion. Um, who feel violated by that coercion or that the treatment they received was unhelpful to them. And uh, we can see that, you know, during the pandemic, people feel quite strongly about being forced to do things. Um, so certainly, perhaps in Australia, more so in the UK, there was a fair bit of um, pushback, for instance, about vaccine mandates. Um, and, you know, I recently published a paper with Christopher Rudge at University of New South, in University of New South Wales Law Journal um, you know, really looking at that aspect of what happened, you know, in a global emergency like COVID-19, and even though there were, you know, very big um, potential benefits for vaccination, we can see that still quite a lot of people were, um, you know, protesting about that and felt that, you know, it was overreach from the government. Um, but even though it's always been controversial, um, and I get into the history of that, you know, in a lot of depth in my book, um, it's only really been since the entry into force of the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities at the international level in 2008 um, that the criticism of involuntary detention and um, detention and psychiatric treatment on the grounds that it's discriminatory is a violation of bodily integrity and is an unjustified interference with liberty has reached a new high and, you know, that abolition has really been pushed for by institutional voices like the um, CRPD committee who is responsible for monitoring and implementing the CRPD. And so 
I want to pick up on this point of the CRPD um, because, you know, I would sort of take the approach that I do think the CRPD committee has taken a really robust interpretation of what compliance um, requires. Um, and you make the case in that your book that con in considering the abolishing mental health law, the CRPD needs to be interpreted using a more holistic approach. Can you explain the value then of the CRPD in this space? How could it be applied more holistically? Okay, sure. Um, well, there are two ways um, people use human rights to advocate for change. So the first way is what I call the shopping list approach, where you select the human rights that you like and that you support that support your position. And you say things like Article 12 of the CRPD requires equality before the law and therefore you must abolish mental health law. The second way is to take perhaps the more holistic approach, which is what I'm suggesting, and to look at all of the rights in the CRPD and international human rights law generally. And of course, what that reveals is that human rights aren't absolute, and that there's actually tension between competing rights and how they fit together as a whole. So for instance, um, the Article 12 um, or the, and the right to liberty in Article 14 um, and say there could be tension with uh, the right to life in Article 10 and the right to life in Article 25. Um, so um, a more holistic approach is more in line with the idea that all human rights are indivisible, interrelated and independent. Uh, interdependent. Um, and, you know, it challenges us to look at a bigger vision of the CRPD and what it's trying to achieve and how it can maximise all the rights of persons with disabilities not just those that are related to liberty. Um, and, and I suppose even taking that one step further, perhaps recognising that there are different rights holders um, as well. Um, so obviously um, persons with disabilities and um, mental health problems have their rights, um, but you know there are also rights of family, friends and community as well. Yeah, and I think that's a really interesting point. Um, and I think that's, you know, something that hopefully in the research will sort of come out more, this exploration of the idea of having a more holistic application of the CRPD and moving away from this sort of rights-based shopping list. I really like that description. So you write that it's my contention that contrary to the assertion of abolitionists, mental health law should not be abolished but should instead be reformed by decreasing coercion and increasing social support for persons with mental impairments. So then from the perspective of the CRPD and especially perhaps the social model of disability, this hypothesis is perhaps somewhat controversial. However, from the perspective of domestic legal frameworks, you know, where mental health law does continue to proliferate, this argument might be understood as more pragmatic, pragmatic and a more realistic approach to protecting the rights of people with mental impairments. Can you explain this key contention in your book and perhaps elaborate on any suggestions for reform? Um, yes. Um, well, that uh, key contention is actually was with my thesis, um, so all about the main contention in the, in the book. Um, and, you know, it's surprisingly controversial um, simply because I don't quite go so far as saying that involuntary detention and treatment should never, ever be used. Um, so to some people, I'm this horrible person who just wants to oppress everybody and take away their rights. Um, and obviously they have their own views and that's perfectly fine. Um, but I don't actually think that's what I'm saying at all. Um, and I certainly don't think I don't care about people with mental health problems um, or that I don't want them to live good lives. So 
I'm suppose I'm concerned that abolishing mental health law may have some um, bad side effects and unintended consequences, um, which is a view that is also shared by some other people who have lived experience. Um, for instance, Lamb and Plum says that we may not be happy with the intervention we've had, um, but would abolishing mental health law mean that we don't actually get any help even, and, and we get left, you know, in a really bad place? Um, and, uh, you know, because of perhaps someone's mood or a delusion or something like that, do something dangerous. Um, and I'm concerned about um, putting the blame entirely on mental health law for abolishing people's rights um, because I think it doesn't give enough weight to the effects that serious mental illness can have on a person's thinking, feelings and their judgment. And simply saying that mental illness doesn't exist, that people always know what they want and we should respect that, even when they might be in the depths of despair or believe that they're worthless or think that jumping off a building, um, if they jump off a building, they're going to save the world, saying that it's really just a matter of social prejudice, discrimination and stifling people who are different is to me unconvincing. Um, you know, and you don't have to, um, you know, have a mental illness to know that human beings actually don't always know what they want. Um, that sometimes we might feel that we're not in a great place to make decisions, even if, or in fact, because we might have very strong feelings and might be upset about something, um, that sometimes we need a good friend to say to us, well, we've had a big night, give me the keys. Um, you know, I'm driving you home tonight. Um, even if we think we're okay, um, you know, we are human and we don't always have to be in control and there's no shame in that. If we abolish mental health law, then there's perhaps a real possibility that people who are, you know, the most severe and with the highest needs might miss out on all help because, you know, services just think that they're too difficult. Um, and they decide, oh, well, we're just going to focus on the people who are easier, um, and less needy. And they're the ones that are going to get all the benefits. Um, however, and this is a really big however, involuntary detention and psychiatric treatment it really isn't ideal. So even when it's life-saving, it can still be traumatising and disempowering. So it shouldn't be our immediate go-to solution. And I think that is actually what one of the strongest arguments of the abolitionists is that mental health law makes involuntary detention and treatment too easy and it can be used for the wrong reasons. Like the psychiatrists and nurses are too busy and they don't spend the time getting to know and understand the person and what their needs are. And, you know, even more importantly, to build that relationship of trust with the person, which we actually know is probably one of the most important factors in supporting anyone's recovery. Trust is just critical. Um, so while I think ab abolishing mental health law completely is unrealistic and unde undesirable, and I stress that no state has actually done it so far, even those who, like Peru who claim to be CRPD compliant probably aren't really. I also think that it's important that um, significant active efforts are made to reduce coercion in, society, in psychiatry as much, much as possible. Um, and many states like Australia who have um, given interpretive declarations of the CRPD and the recent Royal Commission into Victoria's mental health system have talked about involuntary detention and psychiatric treatment being a last resort, um, even though that doesn't go as far as abolition. I think that's still a very high standard and probably what we should be aiming for. And, you know, when I talk about increasing social support, I'm really recognising that we need to get past a narrow biomedical model that is dominant in mental health 
and that social support is, you know, just as important for preventing and treating mental illness as pharma- pharmacological treatments. Thank you. And that sort of leads into the next chapter of your book about the case for the abolition of mental health law. And sort of just digging into this, I'm wondering if you can tell me, you know, do you think it is realistic to abolish mental health law? And, you know, whether or not you do, my insights regardless, oh, sorry, my insights from the abolitionist movement inform current health, mental health law regimes. Uh, yes, I think that's right. Because I think it's a really important point that you've just made. Um, you know, there is this driver of reducing coercion in psychiatry that we can take from the COPD and these abolitionist movements. But then sort of from, you know, looking from domestic law perspectives. And so, for example, you just mentioned some of the reservations of Australia. Canada has a reservation also to the CRPD. It doesn't necessarily seem particularly realistic. Um, And I think John Dawson's made this sort of argument as well. Um, that mental health law will be abolished wholesale. Um, yeah, you know, and I, I do think it's most likely to be to be a more realistic um, solution. Um, but I also think that uh, you know, there's just so much that can be done um, to really reform um, mental health law. Um, and uh, so perhaps the ideal is, um, you know, a lot of work can be done to make the system better. Um, with coercion as a last resort and really a shift away from coercion as the norm. So, you know, it should be used very judiciously because um, for all the potential health benefits, there are also costs. Um, And, you know, if you look very carefully at a lot of the lived experience literature, you realise that a lot of the criticisms are actually about things like, you know, I didn't get any treatment at all or, you know, treatment was limited to drugs and I wanted a bigger range of treatments. Um, or my needs weren't met and I was ignored, or, you know, I, I, the hospital environment was prison-like and it wasn't therapeutic, it didn't help me get better, um, or I was sexually assaulted while I was in hospital. So it wasn't necessarily always a case of saying uh, I was treated against my will, um, but rather the fact that I was treated um, involuntarily made it difficult to reject, you know, poor or unacceptable treatment. Um, so, um, I think that's something, um, also to bear in mind. Um, and, you know, uh, um, I think that, um, with the practicality of it, um, it doesn't, abolition, I think is impractical because it doesn't always work so well with the hard cases, um, and the emergency situations, which is really where mental health law kicks in. Um, and so unless as a society we're very comfortable with the idea that someone might harm themselves, uh, take their own life or hurt someone while they're experiencing symptoms of mental illness and that we should respect that decision anyway, then I think there's always a very strong impulse to protect and to intervene. So my sense is that even if mental health law was to be abolished, you know, it'd only take one really high profile case um, and an incident, um, you know, to be splashed all over the media in the front pages, and the politicians probably wouldn't take long to start implementing it all back again. In fact, they might even make it worse, you know, in response to all that public pressure. So I think as a society, um, we're not really um, comfortable with that idea um, that someone might have a, um, some mental health problems, but they're still making a, a decision um, that should be respected. Um, and, 
you know, I'm concerned that while abolition gives a lot of weight to what we might call the liberty rights of the CRPD, it, it probably doesn't give enough weight to, um, you know, life, health, uh, and quality of life, and you know, inclusion and participation and those other rights that are also in the CRPD, and and that you know, important also for people to have a meaningful life. Um, and I think I was just going to say, I think that's a really interesting point to turn to the next chapter of your book. It's titled The Interpretive Compass of the CRPD, The Theory of Dignity. And I found this really interesting because, you know, you write um, and, you know, it comes through the CRPD time and time again. So I quote, dignity, equality and participation are the core human rights principles that permeate the CRPD. And yet, when we see how the CRPD often is interpreted by disability scholars, um, there's a lot more emphasis on these other sort of aspects like equality and participation rather than, you know, dignity. Um, and so this is what I found really interesting about your book initially. So we know that the theme of the drafting of the convention was nothing about us without us. And that illuminates the participatory side of things. Um, equality is an organizing norm which runs throughout the convention. And it's mentioned more than, I think, 30 times. Whereas dignity, on the other hand, is perhaps more of a, arguably a slippery sort of concept. It's a concept in legal philosophy and in international law, which might be argued is assumed inherently good, but it's not always clear what it actually means. So this contribution or your contribution in this space, I think is really unique. And, you know, I really wanted to read all about that. Can you tell me about dignity in the context of mental health law? Yes. Um, I, yeah, I think it is a, a really important um, principle. Um, and it's not really just in mental health law. Um, it's really the bedrock principle that runs through the entire theory of international human rights law. So it's very significant. Um, and for that reason, I thought it was deserving of a lot of attention. Um, so for persons with disabilities as well, dignity is even more important um, because unfortunately they've been denied dignity so often. Um, and in fact, persons with disabilities have often even been treated as though they haven't been human at all. Um, the other things to point out is that the CRPD was originally called the International Convention on the Protection and Promotion of the Rights and Dignity of Persons with Disabilities, which is quite a mouthful. So that was before they decided to shorten the title and put dignity into, you know, the guiding principles of the CRPD in Article 3. And I think it's in the um, Article 1, which is the purpose of the convention. Uh, you know, and all and quite a few other places, it it um, is uh, intertwined into the convention. Um, so for that reason, I also thought it was really important to really try to understand, um, you know, what it means. So you know, after reviewing the literature, I came up with um, six key characteristics that I thought uh, represented what um, dignity meant. The first is that inherent dignity um, requires recognition of inalienable intrinsic human worth, um, then that uh, inherent dignity must be equal. Um, that there's an important aspect of dignity is, is behaving with dignity as well, um, which is interesting. Um, inherent dignity, of course, requires a person to be treated with dignity. Um, that the state should be organised in a way to support inherent dignity. Um, and that inherent dignity involves respect for autonomy. And this is really interesting too, because I was I was really intrigued by this argument. And I think this also goes perhaps to the heart of the book. So you write that 
On a balanced and holistic reading of the CRPD, which gives effect to all human rights, dignity may at times be given priority over autonomy, which would provide a human rights justification for limited detention and psychiatric treatment, rather than the abolition of mental health law. Nonetheless, loss of dignity, which is caused by the mental health system, must also be addressed and provides a strong basis for significant systemic and legal reform. So can you tell me a little bit about, firstly, how we distinguish between autonomy and dignity? Yeah, sure. Um, Well, when we look at the six characteristics of dignity identified, only one of them actually talks about autonomy. So I say that dignity is actually a much wider concept um, that has an individual aspect in terms of having, acting and being treated with dignity, but also a collective aspect in terms of being this universal standard of what it means to be human. So there are two tensions. The first is what happens if someone is acting autonomously, but they want to do something which is very undignified. So for instance, they want to live in conditions that that aren't fit for a human being, or they want to be used as a human cannonball, or um, to do something that's, you know, very self-destructive. They want to, or they want to, um, you know, sell themselves as a slave because they love slavery. Um, so a prince, the principle of dignity says, no, we can't let you do that. We can't let you live like an animal or consent to being a slave or to be used like an object and rather than be treated as a person. You can't, you know, we don't want you to irreparably mutilate yourself because this is an insult to your own dignity and to that of all humanity. Um, so dignity as sort of like a minimum standard is a liberal, but in the in the respect in that respect, as all, all human rights which set a minimum standard. Um, then the second tension is that um, we think that perhaps if we think that perhaps a person's autonomy might be compromised in some way because they're very inert or delusional or manic or severely depressed, and the person wants to and then that person wants to do something which is inconsistent with human dignity. If a person's autonomy is compromised, I think that the argument for preserving their human dignity is even stronger. Of course, it is it's important to recognize that you know the mental health system, often doesn't treat people with dignity. Um, So I think some of that's simply part of being in a hospital and physical health patients also talk about a loss of dignity. Um, But there's plenty of room for reform of the mental health system. And, you know, it's often the little things that are really important to, you know, give people when they're in hospital that sense of dignity. You know, having empathic staff who actually have time to talk with you and come and play cards with you, you know, rather than hiding out in the nurse's station feeling that, you know, that your needs are met and that you're being treated like a person. And unfortunately, I think the mental health system really fails a lot at this. And, you know, that breeds, you know, people get the message, you're not important, you're a bother, you're in the way, we think you're crazy. Um, and, you know, and all those negative messages, they don't help people recover. They just make them feel bad um, and make them feel demeaned. Um, which is one of the things that, you know, dignity tries to protect people from. And then so you seem to be saying that dignity can do some of the work that autonomy cannot do. I'm wondering if you can just drill into this a little bit more. What can dignity do that autonomy doesn't in this space? Yeah. Well, as I said, I think that autonomy is too narrow and can sometimes be compromised, whereas dignity is a universal minimum standard that all people deserve in order, because they are human. Um, But dignity um, requires people not only to be treated with dignity, but also to act with dignity, and that can sometimes act as a bit of a break on autonomy. Also, autonomy traditionally assumes that people will act rationally, 
Whereas dignity applies to everyone, even if they're incapable of act, acting rationally, even if they're in a coma. Um, also, if you assume that people have autonomy and independence and they don't, that they don't actually have, then that can also lead to a loss of dignity because, you know, they're ashamed to ask for help when they shouldn't feel ashamed. Um, but, you know, having those unrealistic expectations can cause a dignity violation. Um, dignity can require respect for autonomy, but also other values like health and well-being. And I think that's a really helpful distinction. I just want to ask one more question in this space. Um, you know, then do you see dignity as a separate concept or how does it relate or intercept with the concept of self-determination? Um, yeah, well, it's interesting because during the um, negotiations of the CRPD, um, the people who were negotiating it actually wanted to use the word uh, self-determination rather than autonomy. Um, and the reason that they kind of weren't allowed to do that is because um, in international human rights law, self-determination has a different meaning. And it's not really considered to be an individual um, right. Self-determination is more of something that um, it belongs to peoples and groups um, So uh, rather than to individuals. So that's why they used the term autonomy as, as a, something that was sort of interchangeable. Um, but I think probably what they were trying to go for with all that is self-determination the idea of um, what some of the people were wanting uh, with autonomy was a sort of a more libertarian interpretation of autonomy, that autonomy is uh, me getting what I want just because I, because I want to, whatever it is that I say that I want, um, rather, um, and probably self-determination might refer a bit more to that, um, whereas autonomy has some more internal aspects. And I think that's a really interesting um, distinction. Now... The next chapter is titled Application of Inherent Dignity to the Abolition with Support Model. And in this chapter, you demonstrate the work that dignity really can do in the social and cultural context in which it's used. Can you expand upon this? Uh, yes. Um, look, I was simply noting the, that the meaning of dignity isn't a completely abstract concept that occurs in a vacuum. So um, dignity and its violations um, and violations of it uh, can be different perhaps in different societies and cultures. So, for instance, in Western culture, we have certain social norms like wearing clothes in public, eating with cutlery, going to the toilet in private um, that are very much part of what we consider part of being a human being and, and human dignity. Um, and, you know, in the civil rights era, um, being uh, forcing people, uh, black people, to ride in the back of the bus was, you know, supposed to indicate in that context that they had a lower status it was meant to be humiliating and demeaning. And so that was a, in that context, riding or being forced to ride in the back of the bus, you know, it had a, uh, um, was a dignity violation. Whereas normally, you know, uh, I remember kids at school, the people who rode in the back of the bus were the cool people. But, you know, the social context makes a difference. Um, so there's that. But then there's also, um, you know, the dwarf uh, toss, tossing case. I think it's called Wackermeyer, which I talk about. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, there were lots of discussion about what that means for dignity. Um, and as Simon Coglum was sort of pointing out, well, we can't just look at dwarf tossing and think, oh, someone wants to do that for their job. Um, they should be allowed to do it and have the dignity of work because there's a wider social and historical context, you know, where people with dwarfism has, have been traditionally treated like circus freaks, you know, so it has a different meaning as well. 
um, in that context. So there is a danger that our ideas of dignity can be a bit too conservative and perhaps represent those of an old white male. Um, but I don't um, think that there's a problem with that, uh, you know, because we all live in a society. So it's important to just be aware of where our, our ideas of what dignified behaviour is and treatment are coming from and to just bear that in mind. Um, but, you know, as I said, there are certain things that I think are quite widely agreed as being behaviours, that basic behaviours that we expect of human beings. I think that's a really important point. Now, I was intrigued by this idea that viewed through different lenses, autonomous acts can be distinguished from autonomous persons. I sort of, this seemed quite novel and I found it really interesting. So what does this distinction mean in the context of mental health law and especially for those who call for its abolition? Oh, well, I wasn't quite sure where, where you were going or what you were kind of getting at with that. So I kind of assumed that you were meaning that I wrote a comment that um, at this point I want to make, because you had a page number, I want to make clear that um, I agree with the concept of organising society to maximise the autonomy of all persons, including persons with mental impairments, even if I have concerns about assuming that all blacks are autonomous, especially in difficult cases. Um, is that what you were meaning? Yeah, yeah, and that makes sense, I think. Um, yeah, I think I was trying to understand the difference between, you know, when we recognise someone as autonomous and when we recognise their sort of acts as autonomous and whether or not they're the same thing. So I think you've answered that. So yeah, thank you. Um, so let's move on to the next question. Uh, sorry, the next chapter, which is the interpretive compass, um, part one, theories of equality and non-discrimination. So what is the work of equality and non-discrimination in this area? Um, well, equality and non-discrimination, obviously really key uh, international human rights law values, and they're very important in the CRPD. Which, because the CRPD is essentially a non-discrimination convention, like the Convention on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, or CURD, um, and the Convention on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, or CEDAW. Um, so um, non-discrimination is the leitmotif of the convention, and I think we've referred to this before. It's probably mentioned about 31 times throughout the convention. Um, and um, discrimination is one of the key criticisms of mental health law by abolitionists, um, further, given that the CRPD is meant to be an implementation convention like CURD and CEDAW and not actually create any new rights, sometimes I think the drafters were kind of stretching the meanings of equality and discrimination. Um, because they weren't trying to create a new right, but they wanted to include a lot more than what those rights um, traditionally covered. Yeah, and I think that's an interesting point that comes through in the book that, you know, the concept of equality and non-discrimination is somewhat different in the CRPD compared with other international human rights law mechanisms. I don't know if you want to con comment further on that or we can just move on. But um, Yeah, I can talk about that. Yeah. I think, I think that um, some disability rights theorists like Teresa Den Degener, um, Jenny Goldsmith and uh, Bronner, uh, Bronner Byrne have suggested that equality and discrimination in CRPD are different to the rest of international human rights law based on the idea that um, pre-existing meanings of equality and discrimination are suspect because they've been developed by majoritarian non-disabled oppressors without input from persons with disabilities. Um, look, my concern with this is it can perhaps just be a bit overly subjective and, you know, that suddenly words mean something that people say they mean, uh, regardless of their semantic carrying capacity and context. Um, 
and you know one of the big issues was that there was concern that expressly mentioning um, indirect discrimination uh, would bring in the um, Human Rights Committee's qualifications that differential treatment, which is objective, reasonable, proportionate, and made with a legitimate aim, um, would not constitute that, and that if it meets those criteria, it doesn't constitute indirect discrimination. That that would apply, and there really, you know, has been quite a lot of ambiguity about this in the literature as to whether or not um, that normal principle um, that the Human Rights Committee had come up with about indirect discrimination applies to the CRPD. I think the um, negotiators were perhaps trying to sidestep it a bit, um, but it's but it's unclear um, and unclear in some of the CRPD committee's um, jurisprudence as well. Um, and there's probably two other aspects that are quite unique of the CRPD. Um, and the first is that um, the failure to give reasonable accommodation uh, becomes a form of discrimination. And while this is probably... Um, been in the literature a lot about indiscrimination, I think it's probably the first treaty to talk about intersectional discrimination in a treaty, even though that's, you know, widely discussed in the equality and um, discrimination literature, the first time it's actually in a convention. And I think this leads nicely into the next chapter, which is on the difficulties with the meaning of equality, non-discrimination and participation in the CRPD and their application to the abolition with support model. So you write that, given that the CRPD seeks to address inequality and discrimination of every possible type for every person with every kind of disability, it is difficult to arrive at a coherent approach which addresses the inequality of and discrimination against persons with mental impairments in every sense. The question is whether this focus on achieving formal equality, eliminating direct discrimination and the offering of decision-making support is sufficient to achieve the comprehensive and ambitious vision of equality and non-discrimination in the CRPD. I argue that it is not. I found this really fascinating. Can you tell me more about your argument? Yeah, well, once again, I guess because of the sort of methodology that I've taken, I'm really trying to drill down and understand the meaning of equality and discrimination in the CRPD, which I find tries to um, catch all forms of discrimination and equality. Um, but this huge breadth of everything that it's trying to cover means that there are some subtle internal conceptual tensions um, where the meanings just point in different directions. Um, so the first thing is that the CRPD tries to prohibit direct discrimination and achieve uh, formal equality so that everyone's treated exactly the same. But at the same time, it's more ambitious than that in that it wants to achieve substantive equality, which often requires that certain groups are treated differently and to you know lift them up to, to a more equal position. Um, it also wants to achieve transformative equality in terms of changing, you know, systems and social structures. Um, and then there are other sort of multidimensional models of equality and non-discrimination, like Sarah, Sarah Fredman's Four Dimensions and something very similar to that, which is called inclusive equality in the general comment number six, which is trying to achieve more than one equality of what? One area of equality. They're trying to be more comprehensive. But the upshot of this incoherent model that tries to do everything is that it's unclear about how it all fits together. So, you know, the abolitionists argue that, that essentially persons with mental impairments need to be treated exactly the same as those without mental impairments, which means that involuntary detention and treatment must be abolished because they are directly discriminatory. It doesn't really go for any further than that and consider what might be required beyond formal equality to achieve um, 
other kinds of equality, such as substantive equality, especially if supported decision-making might be rejected by the person or it's really, you know, deficient in, in and has limitations. Um, arguably, um, involuntary detention psychiatric treatment could be considered a special measure to, um, you know, recognise the differences of persons with mental impairments and make them equal in terms of access to healthcare, restoring autonomy, um, and assisting social inclusion, increasing their standard of living. Yeah, and I, f- I found all of that really fascinating, and especially the way that you do draw out these tensions, you know, you show that there's more than one way of interpreting the CRPD and this idea of the necessity of a holistic interpretation and application really comes through. Um, and then one of these tensions in this part of the book that comes through is whether or not looking at involuntary detention and psychiatric treatment is a detriment or a benefit. And do you think you can classify it either way or is it more complex than that? I think it really depends on who you ask. Yeah, that's fair. Um, So to some users and survivors, involuntary detention and psychiatric treatment is the worst thing in the world. It's traumatising, completely unhelpful and has terrible side effects. Um, But to others, it's life-saving and life-changing. In my research, I've generally found that there are three groups which I think are roughly divided into thirds. Um, there's a third who hate involuntary detention and treatment and want to abolish it. There's a third who are unhappy about how their involuntary detention and treatment occurred, but who accept that it was necessary. And a third who are, you know, very much in favour of involuntary detention and treatment and believe that it's been a huge benefit to them. And then, of course, families and friends may have a different view as well because they want their loved one to get better and perhaps sometimes see benefits in treatment that the persons themselves don't see. Um and, you know, that's the dilemma because if someone can't access treatment because of their symptoms uh, of their illness are uh, causing them to refuse treatment, abolishing mental health law might significantly disadvantage them and leave them in distress or, you know, in danger of hurting themselves. Um, so things like perhaps psychiatric advanced directives might be able to help and do some of the work here. But, you know, I've published a paper on that recently, um, but there are also a whole lot of problems with them. For instance, you know, What about someone who's had their first episode? So they don't obviously have an advanced directive in place. Um, You know, there's a lot of difficulties in getting uptake and people to actually fill them out, keeping them up to date, um, what to do if people change their minds, you know, new new drugs and technology, um, how they're actually made, how binding should they be, um, you know. So they're not not a panacea. Um, They are something that can potentially be useful to help people um, express their will and preferences um, and you know perhaps in things like one of the treatments that tends to be rejected a lot is uh, ECT so I think it can be quite useful for that and sometimes it can even be used for um, in the in the paper I was looking at arose from a real case where someone put their advanced directive out there because they actually wanted to make sure that they could get treatment quickly um, and you know instead of having to jump through all the restrictions around ECT because she knew that ECT was the thing that worked for her. She didn't want to have to be in hospital a long time waiting for the whole um, tribunal process Um, while she was deteriorating. She just wanted to be able to go in and get out and and have her treatment and get on with her life. So, you know, um, the thing I think probably that comes out of all this is to just realise that there's just so much variation. Um, And there's variation among people who have different kinds and severity of mental health problems. 
and within the disability rights movement as well, I think there is, you know, while there are some common um, catch corrals and common um, themes, I think there's still some variation as well with um, people who have different kinds of, you know, physical and um, sensory and cognitive and uh, mental impairments. There are some differences there too. And I think that's a really important takeaway um, that there is this variation and that, you know, any law reform or any law or processes do need to take into account this variation um, to support the individual in their context, in their sort of family situation. So then, you know, pick up one of these common themes in the CRPD scholarship. I have to ask, what is the role of supported making supported decision making in this context? Um, well, look, I think that supported decision making is really terrific development. And it's very useful to do with a range of social and contextual factors that might impair a person's decision-making while they are ill. So, for instance, if they're feeling overwhelmed and need more time or doctors aren't explaining things properly in a way that they can understand, support decision-making can address some of those issues um, and help people have more time to be able to work through the issues and try to understand what it means. Um, Supported decision-making isn't limited to an abolition model though. It can be used in a lot of other different kinds of models uh, that I talk about, which I call the mental capacity with support model and a more sort of risk-based model. Um, in fact, you could probably use it with anything because it's just providing people with support and I think it's really useful. However, at the same time, there hasn't been a lot of research on how effective support decision-making can be yet. And I think that, you know, it probably does have its limitations. It shouldn't be... Um, we shouldn't expect to miracles from it. Um, so, you know, for instance, it still requires a supporter to interpret the will and preferences of the person and sometimes to, you know, almost reconstruct um, their will and preferences by interviewing people around them and, and almost making a decision for the person. But it's still regarded as the person's decision and not the supporter's decision. Um, it's certainly possible that a supporter... Um, especially if they're a family member or carer might manipulate the person or unduly influence them um, or have some kind of conflict of interest. But at the same time, those are actually the very people, the people who are closest to the person who often make the best supporters because they understand the person and they know them. Um, and then there can be difficulties with finding supporters for pet, some people who are very isolated um, and people that they trust and who can fill that role. Um, and perhaps um, with some people, the nature of their problems might mean that no amount of support can really help them make, you know, um, a meaningful decision, especially if it's a very complex decision. You know, you've got situations where people try to use these principles, for instance, to help someone decide whether they want to have a shower, um, but then maybe <laughs> a more complex decision of, um, you know, uh, whether you want to take a drug or have a surgery or or do something that really most people would struggle with might be for some people, um, you know, really beyond them. Um, and uh, um, the other thing is uh, that the supported decision-making was originally developed for people with cognitive disabilities. It's not always clear how that applies to someone with a mental impairment, where their mental state might be fluctuating, whether they might have impulses to self-harm, um, you know, whether they might be quite vocal about what they want um, but it may not make much sense what they're saying. Well, they might want something that's conflicting, you know. I don't want to eat, but I don't want to die. <laughs> um, and then um, there's the problem 
um, that some people who could probably benefit from some support, you know, they might decide to refuse all support and then, and then what happens? Um, you know, so it's, I guess, understandable they may not want to feel pressured or engaged, um, but yeah, then they're kind of left. Um, and sometimes there have been cases where those sorts of things have happened, the person's actually being abused by someone um, and no one's really been aware of it um, and it's just been allowed to happen. So, you know, I think uh, support decision-making certainly has a lot of potential, um, but I don't necessarily think it's the be-all end-all. <laughs> yeah, I like to think about those. I think that's a really important point that more research does need to be done in this area. Um, yeah, because, you know, it is still so for many solutions, but yeah, we need to find out exactly what it can do and whether there's limits. So then sort of bringing your book together, your last chapter is the interpretive framework and the reform as opposed to the abolition of mental health law. And you raise a number of questions. Um, I'll just sort of read those out and then you can sort of address them if that's okay. So firstly, um, what are the options for reform in mental health law? Why is reform preferable and more compatible with the CRPD than abolition? And finally, does the interpretive compass of inherent dignity, equality and participation assist us in reaching these conclusions? Uh, that's yeah, a big sure. question. Yeah, yeah, that's okay. Um, I'm, I'm probably not going to go into it into a lot of detail. So if people are really interested, um, they should read my book or the new um, book chapter I've got in the Rutledge Handbook of Mental Health Law, where I deal with this in a lot more detail. But as I've already mentioned, you know, I've, I've sort of conceptualised, there, th there are lots of different options, but I've conceptualised them into three main categories. So the first thing is abolition with support, which I think we've spoken about a fair bit. The idea that, um, you know, uh, there's no um, compulsion at all to be able to have psychiatric attention or treatment but people can be given support if they want, which they can reject. Um, there's another model that I call mental capacity with support. Um, and, you know, some countries already have sort of mental capacity type um, civil commitment criteria. Um, the support aspect is a bit more new um, and hasn't always been implemented as well. Um, so that I think could do with a bit of development. But the idea of it is that um, what you try and do is you try and, instead of assuming that people don't have mental capacity, you actually go through the process of testing. Um, and the people who we feel after that assessment do have mental capacity, um, they can make a decision refusing treatment if they want. Um, and we respect that because we go, well, we, we, we've spoken to them, we think that they really understand the issues and they just really don't want this treatment. Um, so we're not going to force them to do it. Um, and then, of course, people who um, don't have mental capacity um, might be forced to have a treatment in that situation. Um, and, of course, support comes in because it, it helps probably create a bigger group of people who can um, have mental capacity because they've got the support that helps them um, make the decision. And, and I think people feel more confident that they know what they understand the decision and what the consequences of it are likely to be. Um, so there's that aspect of it. Um, and, uh, the support except where there's harm model is the idea that the normal process is that we'll give people support to make their own decisions. If we think it's getting to a point where it's, uh, likely to be harmful, 
then at that point we might start thinking about um, introducing some coercion um, because that's sort of more serious cases, which in some ways is kind of similar. Uh, it's just adding a support element to the current civil commitment criteria. Um, but, you know, the Wellesley report and, um, you know, there was an Australian Law Reform Commission report kind of, it seems to be a creature of law reports, uh, came up with that sort of idea, um, sort of keeping what we have, but really trying to make um, capacity the norm for most sorts of decisions. Um, so, yeah, so that's the sort of three different options, um, which, you know, none of them are perfect. They all have their pros and cons. Um, and uh, I prefer the mental capacity with support model because I think it probably does uh, give us the best of both worlds um, in terms of trying to respect people's decisions and respecting their autonomy and dignity, um, where we feel really confident that um, that they are making a, a decision um, that we should respect with giving them lots of support. Um, and the other thing I should point out with support, when I was talking about support and, and, and even talking about these models is if someone falls into the category that they um, lack mental capacity, that doesn't mean we don't listen to them at all. So the idea is that even if someone's in that capacity, uh, in, in, that, in that situation, that there's still a lot of work to be done to still try to implement what their um, wishes and will and preferences are. Um, at that point, um, and it'll probably be really in those more serious situations where where we really think it's going to have probably fairly big consequences that are irreversible or just not good. Um, that not confident that a person can make a decision that that you're going to you know um, use coercion. Bearing in mind that coercion has a cost. Um, you know, it's not. It might be the easy solution, but it doesn't necessarily. In the long term, it may not be the easy solution. Yeah, and I think that's a really nice way to sort of bring the whole book together. I'm wondering if you just have any final takeaways. Um, yeah, I guess I've got a couple of things. Um, so I think probably we've, we've touched on quite a few of these already. And I think the first is that the whole issue of coercion in society is very complicated. I think it's more complicated than some abolitionists actually make out. Um, the second is that the CRPD contains inherent tensions um, that Alex Ruck, as Alex Ruck Keen put put it when he was talking about my right to life paper, that they you know they can't be resolved by by assertion. You need to kind of dig through and try and do the analysis and try and make sense of them um, because you have you know ideas that are probably pulling in different directions. Um, I think that there's also you know still a lot of options. Uh, that might not go so far as um, abolition, but can lead some, to some really big improvements and outcomes um, while trying to recognise all of a person's rights. Um, and, you know, I think the other thing is to just recognise limitations of law. So, you know, we're lawyers, so we focus on the law and that provides the structure and framework. Um, but, you know, illegal change isn't really enough on its own. They need to be supported with, you know, um, lots of work around implementation and training um, and enforcement and um, regulatory and, and lots of other things to really um, implement and, and make real a social change so that the law on the books actually becomes a reality. Yeah, I think that's really, um, that's really interesting and a really important takeaway thinking about social change and this idea that 
the law on the books does become law in reality. I think that's a really nice way to finish. So now, Kay, just before you go, I've taken up a lot of your time, um, but just do tell me, what are you working on now? Okay, well, it's in a sense, it's, it is nicely linked, I think, to this work that I did, um, you know, with my PhD and this question of um, mental health law, abolish or reform, and, and has also been influenced a little bit by the pandemic as well and how that's really changed how people have been thinking, you know, about mental health. Um so I'm doing a lot of work around the social determinants of health and mental health um, because I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, you know, we can keep building hospitals and training psychiatrists and, you know, treating people after they're ill um, and, you know, coercion into psychiatry isn't great. It's not the ideal. Um, instead, perhaps what we should really be thinking about is being more preventive and to, um be thinking about, you know, what further upstream type changes we need to be putting in place um, to, you know, support people better and try and, you know, prevent um, health and mental health problems from occurring in the first place. Um, and uh, this is also a way of perhaps moving away from the medical model to more of a social model. So I see that as um, being related as well. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. I really look forward to what seeing what comes out of that. And it does give effect to Article 25 of the CRPD, which is, you know, the right to health. Um, so, yeah. It actually goes beyond that. That's the that's one of the misunderstandings. Um, a lot of this stuff is talked about in the health context and the right to health, but it's actually about the right to education and the right to housing and the right to, um, you know, an adequate standard of living and social security and to you know, leisure and um, good working conditions and decent works. So it, it actually covers pretty much everything um, that, you know, impacts on um, people's health and mental health and, you know, when these things aren't working really bit wears them down. And certainly a lot of people who have mental health problems do see um, the social determinants as something that's being neglected um, and they see a lot of their personal problems as being related to some of these social uh, in life events and, and social um, pressures um, that aren't really addressed um, by um, the medical model. Um, so I think it's certainly um, an area in terms of thinking about that and how it can put it into law and policy um, is is hopefully going to be um, the growing area. Yeah, well, I'll definitely look forward to seeing what comes out of that. Um, it sounds very interesting and very important work. I'll keep you updated. Oh, excellent. Thank you. So I'm Jane Richards. I've been speaking with Dr. Kay Wilson. We've chatted today on the New Books Network, the New Books in Law, about her latest book, which is Mental Health Law, Abolish or Reform. Kay, thank you so much for your time. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you.